Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. And welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I am your host, Eric Fisher, and this is the show where I talk to the people behind the productivity. This week, I'm excited to share with you a conversation I had with Chris Clues. This is definitely not your normal podcast episode if you've listened to the show before. This one's really fun, not that the others aren't, but this one's really just, it's focused on fun. Chris is a speaker and author of the book series, What 80s Pop Culture Teaches Us About Today's Workplace. And so what better way to celebrate that, dig into that, than to talk about 80s pop culture, and most specifically, 80s pop culture movies, and even a little bit of music. And you may be wondering, well, what kind of productivity lessons can I learn from movies? Well, in this conversation, we talk about the movie Ferris Bueller. Bueller. We also talk about Karate Kid. We talk about The Breakfast Club. Field of Dreams, and a little bit of Prince thrown in. So if that's your jam, if that's your vibe like it is for me, you're going to love this conversation. This one's a little bit more playful, a little bit more fun-oriented. It's a little more lighthearted, but it's definitely practical and applicable. And I think you might be surprised at the lessons you will get out of these movies. Quick little disclaimer, Chris's audio, due to technical difficulties, is a little bit lower quality than usual for the guest on this show, but nothing unlistenable. It's still a very fun conversation. Just wanted to make you aware, but nevertheless, enjoy this conversation with Chris Clues. Well, this week, it is my privilege to welcome to the show Chris Clues. Chris, welcome to Beyond the To-Do List. Thank you so much for the megaphone, because people like you give a voice to people like me. And I truly, truly appreciate the opportunity to be here. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad to have you because you're speaking my language here. You've got a series of books and a brand new addition to the series out called Raised on the 80s, 30 plus unexpected life lessons from the movies and music that defined pop culture's most excellent decade. I can't say most excellent without thinking Bill and Ted. So... (laughs) There's a great story behind that too. Bill and Ted was actually going to be in the new book. But at the last second, well, when I was as I was writing the book, there was the news that came out about Bruce Willis, and I don't know if you know, like I guess the disease that he has now that was precluding him from doing acting. And so I felt like I wanted to thank him for all of the great years of entertainment that he provided to us from Moonlighting Forward, and uh, so I did a chapter on Die Hard instead of Bill and Ted's. Yeah, well, and there you go. You're teasing some of the stuff I have actually gone and selected through some of the previous books, as well as some stuff from the new book, because I just couldn't help it. I mean, I saw that you had in one of the previous books, Ferris Bueller, and that movie. So before we get into this, I want to talk about a little bit here. 
we got a couple different movies. I want to set it up by talking about like, what's our story with that movie a little bit, set the context, you know, because the ones that I've selected really resonate with me. I thought that would be the most interesting for anybody to, you know, listen in on conversation wise. And then we'll go into, you know, the story of the movie a little bit, the lesson from the movie, lessons from the movie, I should say. And, uh, you know, just hit some of these high points and move on through first one. So I've mentioned it, Ferris Bueller. That one, yep. I actually just rewatched this week on purpose because I knew I was going to talk to you. And I'd already looked through the book, but I was like, that movie's been on my mind since Spider-Man Homecoming. And I think you know what I'm talking about. There's this section yes. of that movie where he's running through backyards like the ending of Ferris Bueller. And then there's literally Ferris Bueller running through backyards on a TV screen in a backyard. It's so meta. It just stuck in my brain. And I was like, I got to watch that. I got to watch that. Hadn't gotten around to it. I got to tell you, this watch, I fell in love with it all over again. In fact, probably a deeper way than I've ever had it before. Yeah, and you know, it's funny too. Also, at the end of Deadpool, if you stay for the to the end of the credits, the original Deadpool, you have a great, uh, I won't tell you, but you have a great reference to Ferris Bueller at the end of Deadpool as well. And I think Ferris Bueller will be in the first movie to do that little stay through the credits and you get something different. It might be. Cool. Yeah. So I would definitely recommend if you haven't done that and you're a Deadpool fan, go watch the end of the credits and wait about five seconds and uh, you'll love it. So yes, I'm curious, you know, she knew it. I want to point out just real quickly, you talked about how you fell in love with it all over again, but even deeper. And so that's what I do. That's what happened with me is that I looked at these 80s movies and I thought, I'm older now. I'm, you know, 25, 30 years past when I saw them in the theater. And I feel like they can teach us something. I feel like there's something deeper in these movies than... The entertainment value is huge, of course, but then there's something deeper in these movies that we can learn from them. And a lot of times it's from unexpected places like Ferris Bueller or Jess Bacarley or these characters that you don't expect to learn anything from, and you actually do. So Ferris, the really, the lesson that would stick out first and foremost, of course, would be kind of the work-life balance or the school-life balance. Of course, I mean, he takes nine days off of school, nine times. And so I would say like that, obviously that's the surface lesson is this idea that we need to take breaks. We need to take time off. Even if we need to make something up, never a bad thing to make something up. If we need to take a day off, you know, just do it. If there's a deeper lesson in Ferris, and I think it's the one that everybody misses, I feel like the movie is almost more about Cameron Fry than it is Ferris. As an adult, as a kid, it was all about Ferris. I wanted to be Ferris. My friends wanted to be Ferris. It was all about Ferris. It was all about flying. These two optimistic, fun people who enjoyed taking days off together and had a great time. We saw how optimistic they were. As an adult, I look back and I say, but the movie's really about Cameron Fry, this negative, pessimistic kid. Why is he like that? What is driving this in him where at 17 years old, he is so cynical and negative? Where we have Ferris as long being so positive. And so if we take that perspective and uh, we say, okay, so the movie's a little bit more about Cameron, then we look at it from a different perspective and we say, well, what Ferris and Sloan did actually was for Cameron. And this, uh, they were, there was actually like a selfless act that they invited Cameron around with them on their day off. Because if you remember at the beginning, there's a lot of planning that went into this ninth day off. A lot of planning. And Cameron could have easily ruined that day for them with his attitude. But Ferris and Sloan went past that because they recognized that Cameron needed to stay off more than they did. But the beginning, Ferris says, you know, if, if Cameron goes to college, they round up this tight, you know, his roommate's going to kill him. And it's real. And we see this with Cameron. He's laying in bed and he says, I'm not going, I'm dying. And 
you know, it's this whole thing. It's, it's really fantastic, but it's about this idea of a selfless act. Then we do something for a friend. We help ourselves in the process. And at the end of the movie, we actually see that because of this day off, we find out what it is. Well, actually, it's because the Ferrari goes out of the uh, second story window of the garage. But we find out what it is about that, that's driving Carol's pessimism, and it's his relationship with his father. Now, we never see it resolved, but we know that Cameron says, I'm going to handle this. It's time for me to have a conversation with him. And that all stems from taking that day off with Ferris and Sloan. It's a selfless act. He could have ruined the day, but they recognized that he needed it more than they did. Yeah, I, I love this movie for being such a just, it's a snapshot one day in the life of all the characters that are in it, whether that's Ferris, his parents, his sister, Cameron, especially. And you just get a complete picture and you kind of then, okay, we're done. We're not going to, you know, there's no sequel. There was rumored sequels where it was like, hey, it's Ferris 30 years later. But I think that defeats the purpose of it because that's not what this is about. And I'm definitely tracking with you and what you're saying, because I remember at the, I think it's the restaurant that they go to, Ferris is talking to the camera, probably one of the first movies to have that happening as well. He's talking to the camera, us, and he's telling us that like this day was important more for Cameron because his home is like a museum. You know, what was it like for him to be a baby in that place? He caught Cameron enjoying the car ride. He said, this is good for him. Then I tracked that, that when they're at Wrigley Field during the baseball game, he turns to Cameron and he says, if we played by the rules, we'd be in gym right now. So instead of participating in forced physical activity, they're observing somebody else do it. But anyway, beside the point, yeah, it's it's this whole like... Cameron having a, a catalyst moment from Ferris to force him to deal with this thing that he, you know, had this day not happened and the incident with the car and the odometer and all that kind of stuff not happened and him then realized, well, I'm sunk. My dad's going to see this, which then takes it to another level when he just kind of starts to take it out on the car. Who do you love? Who do you love? And then it goes through the window and. I mean, he's going to see this. I can't not deal with it. Like it forces the issue with him and his Cameron and his father. And that's really cool. In fact, father issues is a real string of things in some of the stuff we're going to talk about. Yeah. I mean, listen, that, that is a, you know, John Hughes was brilliant in that he was so adept at connecting with teenagers and he wasn't, I and mean, he was young. I mean, he was in his probably, what was he late twenties, maybe uh, early thirties when he was really hitting his stride. But still, he was, he was able to connect. He understood high school in particular, high school youth and the, and the struggles and the challenges that are real when you're 16, 15, 17 years old. And we all have a Camden Fry in our lives. There's somebody in your life, whether it's in the workplace or in your personal life, we all have a Camden Fry. Just offering up that ability to say, hey, let's go out for an hour. Let's have a cup of coffee, lunch, take a half a day, take a full day, whatever it is. They're probably going to do the same thing Cameron said. They're going to resist, but keep pushing because they need it, you know, and you can help at least in a small way this Cameron Fry in your life. You can show them something a little bit different and maybe it'll spark something in them to realize, hey, this is what's going on with me. And, you know, you're there for them. I mean, you can't, you're not a psychologist, of course, but you're there for them as a friend. You're there for them as a coworker and you're showing them. Something a little bit different, even if it's just for a few hours. Yeah. And one of the things you don't want to miss out on here also is just the fact that like Ferris is really living out, you know, he, he's he's maybe doing the wrong thing for the right reason instead of doing the, the wrong thing for the right reason or however you want to put it. But like nine days off 
over the course of the school year, honestly, that's not really that bad. In fact, nine days, I mean, that's like one every month over the course of an entire school year, right? That's not that bad, really. You know, there's obviously the quote from Ferris himself where he's like, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop to look around once in a while, you could miss it. And he's got a great infectious attitude. He's almost the prototype for what's to come a few years later with like Zach Morris on Saved by the Bell, you know, but it's it's that idea of, well, the, the reason that it catches me is, and I'll say this, the first time I saw this movie, I was at home sick. And I don't know if I was sick for real or just taking a sick day, but I remember (laughs) the irony not being lost on me if I even knew what the word irony meant just yet. So, (laughs) yeah, it's, it's, uh, I'll tell you, um, you're right. That lunch is pretty fast. If you don't stop to look around once in a while, you could miss it. It's kind of like, you know, stop to smell the roses type of thing. But that's also, that's a fantastic line. And to think that somebody, I mean, it's just a movie character, of course, that's really coming from John. He is. But to think that somebody who was 17 or 18 would be thinking like that already, that life moves pretty fast. And as you get older, you realize how fast it actually moves because a lot of things happen throughout your life that you think, wow, I wish I had more time with this person. You know, I've had that happen a few times in my life. I wish I made more of that this a little bit differently. And things move so fast, but when you ultimately end up getting to a place, you get to a place where you say, I just want to enjoy it. Whatever that means for me or my friends or my family, whoever you care about in your circle. What that means for us, I just want to enjoy this. And Ferris and I already figured that out as a senior in high school. And, and the nine times thing, you know, back in the 80s, we looked at truancy a little bit differently. So <laughs> I think nine times, it's probably a lot. I would say True. probably not ten. But um, back then, you know, we think about just recording fast times and Mr. Hand getting so frustrated with him because he's always late to class. You know, I don't know how often that happens anymore. I'm, I'm not in high school, but I'd imagine less. So, yeah, I think the other thing that kind of occurred to me as we were watching through the movie again was Ferris's attitude towards life versus Mr. Rooney. And I just kept thinking, I really hope that Ferris and Cameron and especially Cameron moving into this new phase of dealing with his dad and kind of getting out of his fear of him and his hypochondriacness, if that's a word, that they would break out of that pattern or that, that Ferris would stay on that pattern, that he would stay in that mode, but that Cameron would break out of it and that they would both hopefully avoid turning into a Rooney about life. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, it's interesting about Mr. Rooney because if we talk a little bit more about John Hughes, Mr. Rooney, Principal Vernon, what's this common theme with principals and adults and how they've grown into maybe somebody that they didn't want to be? You know, ultimately, maybe that there's a lot of resentment there with Mr. Rooney, Principal Rooney and Ferris, and Ferris Bueller. You know, he may resent him because he wishes he would have done, maybe done things a little bit differently. Maybe he wishes he had deep down inside that he was Ferris as a kid or even as an adult. And we see something similar with Principal Vernon. Although I would say as you get older, again, you start to appreciate the Principal Vernon character a little bit more. You start to understand a little more of where he's coming from and how frustrated he could actually be. And I do think that there's a lot of principal Vernon looking at these kids and saying, you know, they may be in detention today, but they're living their lives. And did I actually do that? Or did I wake up one day as a 15-year-old principal of high school when I never really did the things that these kids did? And so I think there's, again, we think about John Hughes and there's just, there's these really interesting commonalities across some of his movies with the characters. It's kind of a boiling of the frog kind of a thing. And I think this was one of the ideas that was thrown around as a potential sequel for Ferris Bueller was Ferris wakes up years later and he's kind of gotten out of his Ferrisness and 
reclaims it somehow through a day of skipping work. And I thought that's a cool idea. I think being older, I could appreciate that side of Ferris and it could be interesting and a reboot, nostalgia, whatever. But like, I almost am like, just don't touch it. Let's just revisit the first one and be inspired by it. Stop. Stop. Well, I, I should say the sequels, maybe, but stop remaking 80s movies. They actually had a TV show that lasted like a year, I think. Oh, wow. I didn't even remember that. Pretty sure. I'm pretty sure there was a yeah. Ferris TV show. And now they're actually, it's either Netflix, maybe, or Amazon Prime, that's actually doing a Ferris Bueller TV show, but it's actually based on the two valets and what they did with the Ferrari. Yes, I remember hearing about that. That could be fun. And it may introduce a whole new audience, younger audience to Ferris Bueller in a, in a different way. They may go back, but you know, a, a kid may go back and say, okay, well, now I want to go watch Ferris because now I'm kind of curious about it. So it may reintroduce an entirely new audience, which would be kind of cool. I like those kind of things when they do that. I don't like when they, I actually despise when they remake 80s movies. I can't think of an, a single remake that's worked. Uh, maybe 21 Jump Street, and that was more based on a TV show. But beyond that, I, I, I'd be challenged to find one that worked. So I am kind of glad that they never did the sequel and they left it where it was. And our frame of reference is, is 1986. So hopefully I'm not, somebody can fact check me on that. We're well, Deadpool 2016 at the end. <laughs> yeah. Well, so speaking of reboots or maybe sequels or whatever you want to call it, the next thing I want to talk about is Karate Kid. And so for me, Karate Kid was huge when I was young. I loved all three movies. I know they're varying degrees of quality or whatever, but like if you look at it as a whole package, that's great. But then a few years ago, I think five, six years ago now, there was the YouTube Cobra Kai that came out and was there for two seasons and then Netflix bought it. And, and as at the time of this recording, season six, the final season has been announced. And I'm like, thank God it's the last season because how much longer can you do this? But I will say I have really enjoyed revisiting it and seeing all the different stories and characters and drama, whatever that's been in it and watching it along with, you know, having my kids watch it with me and even be interested in the original movies because of that. Yeah, I, I am a huge fan of Cobra Kai. I, I think Cobra Kai is exactly what you should do when it comes to 80s movies. You know, they're actually doing an Axel Foley, I'm sorry, Beverly Hills Cop 4 that's coming out, Netflix is producing, with Eddie Murphy as Axel Foley. It's the only way that it works, okay? So it's like, he's still alive, so, you know, he's still Axel Foley, and, and, and they should use him. So yeah, I love Cobra Kai, and uh, if we go back to the original Karate Kid, Mr. Miyagi, for my money, is one of the greatest cinematic characters of all time. Not just 80s, but, you know, the entire history of cinema on so many levels that we could go really deep and spend a whole episode on Mr. Miyagi. But every line of dialogue from him has a lesson in it. And uh, if we go back to the original and we all think of wax on, wax off, which is kind of the line that everybody remembers. And there's another line that he delivered when he was having Daniel do the chores to learn the basics of karate. And he says, don't forget to breathe. Very important. And this was the line that stuck with me, at least as an adult. Again, I looked at that line and I thought, yeah, you know what? It is important to breathe. And I don't mean the involuntary breathing that we do, because if, if we had to think about that, I'm not sure I would make it. That's 17,000 to 30,000 times a day that we actually breathe. So putting that aside, what I'm talking about is defining breathing in a different way. Breathing meaning taking a step back from the things that are going on. Similar things to Ferris Bueller, but a little bit different, designed a little more for us as adults. This idea of breathing. So I see that stress is like dehydration. Once you realize you have it, it's too late. And uh, I don't know if you've ever had dehydration, Eric. 
I don't think I've ever gotten quite to the point, but I've gotten close and noticed it soon enough. So it gets to the point where it takes several days to get over physically and mentally. I've actually had it. And yet yeah, the moment that it hits you, you really do feel like you're dying. I mean, it's, it's a pretty intense feeling. And when you get back over the day, you you can see all the things that you did, but get up to that point where you had dehydration to the point where your body and your brain and your mind are going to say, that's enough. We've had it. And we're going to react in kind. Stress is the same way. It builds up over the course of day, a day or days or weeks. And we walk around with it all the time. So we're almost accustomed to just having it inside of us. But at some point, it bubbles to the surface. And it, for everybody, it's different. Of course, you know, some people might, you know, lash out at a friend or a spouse or whatever. And I say lash out I and mean just, you know, get frustrated, like just whatever. And, and it's not because you're actually frustrated with that person necessarily. It's because you're you have this stress that's built up inside of you and you haven't taken time to breathe. And so what I mean by that is a cup of tea, a cup of coffee, walking your dog, playing with your kid, playing with your cat if you're into cats. I'm more into dogs, you know, whatever, whatever makes you happy. You're not getting a workout in, yoga, meditating, all these different things that we can do to breathe. Take that time when you feel it to breathe. And I want to talk about this from a workplace perspective as well, because leaders, it's so important to let your team members know that they have space to breathe. And I don't mean a scheduled lunch. I don't mean the end of the day. I don't mean Saturday. I mean, there may be a meeting coming up in 30 minutes and you may have somebody who says, I'm freaking out. I need 30 more minutes or I need to take a break here. You know, I'm really stressed. You have to be able to build in that flexibility. I know it's not possible for every single thing that you do, but you need to build in that flexibility as much as possible. And leaders, you need to take time to breathe because we talk about the idea of shit rolling downhill. Well, stress rolls downhill and it takes out a lot more people along the way. It makes everybody unproductive. It makes everybody else tight and stressed. And then, you know, of course, from there, it leads to things like, you know, productivity, loss, um, health issues for people beyond, you know, just the idea that they just don't like working there because it's always stressful. So take that time to breathe and leaders, make sure you let your team members know to take that time to breathe. Yeah. And it's one of those things where it kind of creeps up on you. You may not even realize it. If you're not consistent and intentional with taking that time in and of yourself, but also then allowing others, like you said, with leaders to allow that time and make it stated, make it known, make it part of the culture that you're part of. And don't just say it, like believe it, empower them, give them the spaces to do that. Let them know about it, repeat it, communicate it. Still searching for a great candidate for your company? Don't search, just match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch that busy work. Instead, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. I wish I had Indeed when I was in the hiring process in roles in the past because it is a slow, arduous headache of a process to find the right people or at least it used to be, join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to find and hire great talent fast. In fact, in the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed, according to Indeed data worldwide. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash to-do list. Just go to Indeed.com slash to-do list right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash to-do list. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. One of the other things that I think is is huge in this series, especially well, it's in it's present in all three movies, but it's also especially present throughout the Cobra Kai series is this people think they're communicating. They're not really communicating. And that's better for us as a as a viewer, because then there's drama and it's it's fun to watch. But, you know, things come to a head and it's just like Johnny. Johnny and Daniel would just freaking talk like so many of the drama moments would actually have been like there are these moments every single season, you know, spoiler alert, there's moments every single season where they get along and they're actually friends. And it's like you kind of tear up a little bit. It's like, oh, yay, the rivalry is done. But, you know, it's about to just pivot again because of something that a kid does or one of them says something wrong and they're not really communicating around the same page. It's actually why I loved season five a lot. There was a lot of relational between the kids and the adults and the kids and the adults and the adults like that kind of they were listening they actually things came to a head and they you know kind of like Cameron you know as we were talking about with Ferris Bueller like things came to a head and it was like we can't move on until we go through this and it was like whether that was actually having a fight a real fight or a verbal fight or a mixture of both it really started to clear stuff up and it was one of the more rewarding seasons of the show for me. Yeah, I agree. That's actually a really good point. The idea of the communication, because now that you got me thinking now, and this idea that, that you know, Johnny and, uh, Daniel, it's been what, 40 years and then they're 35 years and they still can't set their egos aside. There's still an ego play there. Yeah. What they ultimately realize is with everything that they've been through, with all the stuff that's been going on with them, they're not bad guys. They're not bad people because they see what bad people really are. Yes. Um, we're going to reintroduce to several of them. Terry Silver. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, a whole list of people that, I mean, Terry Silver seems, you know, almost like the preeminent enemy and, and the preeminent villain. So I would say, like, they realize that there are bad people and they're not bad. They just have, they just, they just need to set their egos aside or they just had a disagreement. But it also teaches you that there are things that happen in our youth that we sometimes have difficulty getting past. And it seems silly, you know, to think about like, well, or at least, you know, from the outside, you're like, oh, how could you be upset about losing a, you know, a match in karate? But the reality is there were all these things that happened because of that, that drove Johnny down a certain path. Now, could he have made better choices? Maybe. But that idea that you're 17 years old and something happens and you react to it, not as if you're 50 or 40 or 60, but you're 17. And what happens from that one moment? in that path that, that we've chosen or that is, you know, chosen for us a little bit, we've chosen ourselves, but ultimately we end up in a place that maybe we didn't want to be. So I think there's a lot, a lot of deeper stuff going on. We're just kind of like, I say, I tell people like Cobra Kai is great because it's, it's the perfect mix. Of, it's got a little bit of like after square special cheesiness. Yes. But then it also has, they did such a great job blending the nostalgia. And I'm grateful to see William Zabko get another bite at the apple because I do think he's a great actor. And he just got typecast as the guy with the sweater around his neck in, in the 80s with Back to School and the Karate Kid and a couple of others where he just played, the, you know, the high school bully guy. Yeah. I'll be curious to see when the show is over for good here soon, what happens with him in terms of acting roles. 
I think he'll do well. I really do. I think that, you know, ultimately, well, he may play this Johnny Lawrence for a little while longer. And who knows? We may get a Cobra Kai movie. It's a very real possibility that we could. I'm glad to see him get this second chance because uh, he seems like a good dude. And also, I just, I enjoyed him in the 80s. I thought he was a pretty good actor and he just got typecast. Yeah. So there's another movie here that uh, it was one of those ones where I wasn't necessarily allowed to see it right away when I was young in the 80s. But The Breakfast Club is another one. And, that you know, that's had its moments in the sunshine recently, too. And a lot of people know the whole, you know, the end of the movie. And it's the Don't You Forget About Me song playing. And they it, it's been spoofed and not just spoofed, but like honored in different ways in other movies where they show it. And, you know, he f- does the fist bump and the freeze frame and all that. So we've all got that in our heads. But what are some of the lessons from that i've got a few in my mind but what are what are yours yeah so in my newest book actually um we mentioned books before that the first two books are what 80s pop culture teaches us about today's workplace and each one of them has 10 different movies from the 80s and then the third one raised on the 80s is kind of drives more life lessons it has some workplace culture lessons or life lessons as well and i redid the breakfast club in the third one because the first book i didn't expect really anything to happen and when it kind of took off I was like, I had this little 60 page book that had a page and a half on the breakfast club. Like, I had to do better than this. So I gave it its, its due in the third book. And I had a lesson from each one of the characters, including Carlton Janitor and Principal Vernon. Well, the driving theme through the breakfast club really for me is about individuality. It's about being your own person. It's about being comfortable with who you are. It's about understanding that. Regardless of who you are, people around you who care about you are going to love you. And that's a really important theme, I think, throughout the Breakfast Club. You hear Andrew, the athlete, who we think is perfect, right? What could possibly go wrong with this guy? He's like the high school athlete. He's the star. But he's got a lot of deeper issues as well. And one of the lines that he delivers is, we're all pretty bizarre. Some of us are just better at hiding it. That's all. And when you hear that line from a guy that, who's supposed to be the popular kid or is the popular kid. And he feels that. He feels bizarre. And so what it's basically saying is it's okay. Like, look, actually, it's cool to be bizarre. I think it's cool to be bizarre. Why be normal? That's that great bumper sticker, right? Why be normal? I think it's great to be bizarre. I think it's important for kids, particularly in high school, to understand and appreciate that and know that it's okay to be who you are. Because ultimately, the people that have a problem with it, they don't matter, okay? At the end of the day, who cares? It's the people around you that love you and like you for who you are. Those are the people that matter. Those are the people that are always going to support you. And I think that this is an important theme throughout The Breakfast Club, this idea of individuality. And we learn about each one of these characters and what their issues are from the outside. We may look at Andrew and we may look at Claire and think that they have these perfect lives compared to, say, Brian, who gets picked on because he's smart, or Bender because he's got you know a rough Life at home, a little bit different than maybe some of the other kids do. So, I mean, you know, they all, they all come from these different walks of life, but they all have their own little issues. And at the end of the day, they all kind of come together and, and kind of appreciate and respect each other's differences. And it gets to a head, of course, in the, the song talks about it, where you walk on by, right? And Brian poses that question and says, you know, are you going to even recognize me on Monday, essentially? And Claire says, no, I don't think so. And it starts this whole conversation, but ultimately, at the end of it, you realize she will say hello to him. They do get to know each other. They do get to appreciate each other's individuality and differences. Yeah. For me, that is really, you know, I I think the first time as well as 
each repeat viewing of that movie, I just kept thinking of this theme of unlikely allies, I guess is the best way to put it, is that they all yeah. realized, you know, and they kind of say, I'm forgetting his name, but I think it's Bender, but at, at the end, they don't do the assignment at all that they're supposed to be in, in Saturday morning detention for, but they write the kind of end summary of, hey, we're all this, we're all this and this and this and this and this and this, and we discovered that, and it's because they actually got to talking and they got to sharing and they looked past the, you know, the obvious high school tropes of Jock and Dweeb and et cetera, et cetera, but like like that they realized yeah they realized that they had a lot more in common than they did that differentiated them and you know i I, i'd like to think that things are a little bit different you know these days like if you think back somebody that like star wars in the 80s was classified a nerd and now everybody air quotes everybody like star wars and so it's become acceptable and it's you know there everybody's a nerd it's just there's different things that differentiate etc but anyway the unlikely allies discovering that we're not all different and this works in the workplace this works in especially works in online life because we have this the screens that distance us, even though we feel like we're connecting and we're closer because of the tech, in a lot of ways, it's separating us and dividing us in some ways, if we think about it that way. Yeah, and look, I, I, you know, there's a great, you, you talked about the modes, right? And so let's talk about that for a second, because that drives a little bit more of this lesson. And it also harkens back to some of these 80s movies. And this idea that, you know, before the 80s, and I do talk about this as well, you think about, and even in the 80s to a certain extent, but that we had this shift that was happening. We think about who the action heroes were, who the heroes were, who were the protagonists in movies. It was the guy that came in on horseback with the cowboy hat that was going to save the town. It was, you know, the oversized dude like Arnold Schwarzenegger who could carry like 13 buns and grenades all over him in commando and take out like 80 guys in three minutes. It was all of these, it was Alan Ripley, you know, big strong character, great with guns and aliens, you know, just like you think about who the action, who the heroes were, who the protagonists were. Well, in the 80s, there was this shift that began with Revenge of the Nerds. Revenge of the Nerds, as far as I remember, was the first movie where we were rooting for our, the nerds. They were actually the protagonists. They weren't, I mean, they were being making fun of it, but they were made fun of it at the beginning, but ultimately we were rooting for them. And as we progressed through the 80s, we started to see more of this. And to your point about the idea of like Brian, Brian writes the letter for the Greek of the Breakfast Club. And we come to really appreciate him. And there's a great lesson about Brian and how what we see on the surface versus what's beneath. And that I, I talk about how if you've ever been snorkeling versus scuba diving, how when you're in the ocean, what you see at the top on the surface, you know, the really great stuff is way below the surface. And that's the same thing in humans. But the really great things are, are below the surface, not just below it, way below it. And that's what we learn from Brian. But we even get into movies like The Lost Boys, for example, which is one of my favorite movies from the 80s. You know, vampire, great vampire movie. And who are the heroes in that movie? The Fad Brothers. Two kids that work in their parents' comic book store who weigh about 150 pounds soaking wet combined. Wear army surplus shirts. They're not going to be the guys that you look to and say, our town's on fire, save it. Those are not going to be the guys, but yet they do it. And so there's a real important lesson about how problem solvers don't come in a one-size-fits-all package. And to your point about workplace culture and workplaces, this is so true. We often go to the same people, the people with the big title. Oh, they'll solve our problems. Well, the person that we've always gone to, include everybody. When your business is having a challenge, include the new people. Because guess what? When you're a new person, it's awkward. It's tough to kind of get integrated into the culture at a workplace for anybody. Include the people who are maybe like a little bit of an introvert. You'd be surprised 
We could actually help you solve the challenge for your business. Remember that problem solvers don't come in a one-size-fits-all package. And that's a theme throughout the 80s that I think because of that, we had shows like The Big Bang Theory, which would not exist without Revenge of the Nerds, without the Ross Burroughs, without the Goonies. There is no Big Bang Theory. That's why Big Bang Theory exists, because the 80s said it was okay to be a brain. It was okay to be a nerd. It wasn't just okay. It was cool. And you could be the hero and you could be the protagonist. Yeah. And it, it took a while after the, the 80s and start of some of that innovation, but it kind of got there. So one last movie here I really want to talk about here is, and this is another one that's kind of near and dear to my heart. And this one, this is also has, you know, father issues in it, but not as the main driving force, although you find that out in the end that it's there. It's Field of Dreams. This is one that, so for me, I am not a huge sports guy, but I have fond memories of going to the Rochester Red Wings, Rochester, New York. The Red Wings were the home team for the uh, Baltimore Orioles. And so we'd go all the time as kids and my dad would take us, we'd go as a family. And it was one of those things that like, you know, I didn't get it when I was super young. I'd run around the stadium and have fun and whatever. And like, can we get this? I want this snack and all that. But like, as I started to age up incrementally here and there, started to get it, like sitting there and just enjoying it and the pastime and the people and everything. And so when I saw this, the first time I saw it, I actually saw it sitting down while my dad was watching it. And I didn't quite get it, but I was fascinated. And then revisiting it like in teenage years, as well as in adulthood, like the movie is a masterpiece. It's it's amazing. And it's the anti-sports movie. Not that it's against sports. What I mean is it's not the traditional sports movie where it's We've got to overcome our differences to win the championship story. It's about sports in the way that it's like a permeation of the culture and the way that we see each other and act. And But it's so much more than that. So you've got more to talk on this for sure. But that's where I'm coming from on this. Yeah, I wanted to, you mentioned the father thing really quickly back to the Breakfast Club. Principal yeah. Vernon. So if we think about Principal Vernon, you know, yes, was he um, painful? Yes, he was. But. And if you look back as an adult, what you realize is that he was really trying to help Bender in his own way. I mean, he was almost trying to be a father figure, a disciplinarian of sorts with Bender. This idea that like you keep, you know, doing these things and you're going to keep being in detention. He wasn't letting him off the hook. And I think that there was like something that was happening there with Principal Vernon and Bender that people just kind of overlooked. Especially when you're a kid, you're like, oh, I hate Principal Vernon. But reality is, yeah, I mean, he wasn't not the principal that I would want, but for Bender, it may have been just the right, you know, kind of quote unquote father figure that he may have needed. So uh, back to the Field of Dreams, because there is a father son connection, as you mentioned here as well. And Field of Dreams being, um, I mean, listen, anytime you put James Earl Jones in a movie, you need to see it. I mean, let's mm. just, let's just say that because Field, if you, if you, you know, putting aside Darth Vader, you've got, I mean, James Earl Jones is in so many great movies, including like the Sandbot where he had a small role, but I mean, just an awesome role in the Sandlot as well. Field of Dreams, you can go on and on and on with James Earl Jones coming to America. So in Field of Dreams, one of the really important lessons here is really for people who are entrepreneurs, people that are thinking about taking risks in life. And there's that moment where he hears the voice, of course, and he thinks, what am I supposed to do here? And he realizes I'm supposed to like basically destroy the crop that is going to feed my family through the sale of it. I'm already almost in foreclosure, but I'm going to take away the product that actually is going to help me 
that helped my family and I'm going to build a baseball diamond. Why? Because I heard a voice. Crazy. Crazy, right? So there's a moment where she and his wife, Annie, Ray and Annie, are in the cornfield after he's built a baseball diamond. And, you know, they're basically, basically talking about how I, I just did something totally illogical, what he tells her. But she loves it. She thinks it's great. She supports him 100% because she understands she's that she's a very like interesting character. She's really cool. She's a very free spirit. And so she's the perfect person to be in a partnership with him and a relationship with him as well. She understands that she gets it. And I talk about the difference between logical and illogical and how we need logical because that builds roads. It builds bridges. But in order for us to progress as a society, we really need the illogical people. We really need the people that are told, like, that's crazy, that's illogical, that doesn't make any sense. Because if we didn't, you know, who knows where we'd be? We, we would have our roads and bridges, but what else would we have? Would we have this technology right now that you and I are using? Probably not. Somebody ought to be pretty illogical to think of this. I mean, when there were candles, I mean, you know, Thomas Edison was trying to figure out electricity, but when people say you're crazy, we've got candles, this is perfectly fine. <laughs> that's all we need, and we've got the sun during the day. No, I, there's a whole host of things of, that people have done that were illogical. There are people doing those things today. And it's not just about invention and innovation, but it's also about creativity. If you think about some of the people that have created really awesome things that we enjoy, that entertain us, and that we absorb content that we have, those people are illogical too. I mean, you can look at like, I, I use Lady Gaga as an example in the book. And how she is this massive, worldwide superstar. But if you think about it, if you look back at the beginning of her career and how she was on this reality show on MTV and doesn't look anything like Lady Gaga and she was using her real name on how she did all of these really, I don't want to say odd, they were unique things to try to get people's attention so that she could get to the point where she could take all that stuff off and just deliver to us what she had, which is this incredible talent. But it was a bit illogical, her way to where she got to, to, it was in her mind, it wasn't. But when you looked at her and people looked at her in that neat dress on the MTV awards and people were like, what is she doing? There was this, a little bit of illogical that was happening there. And ultimately it got her to where we have her today, which is she's Lady Gaga. She gets out on the stage and she's got, you know, arguably one of the greatest voices in the world. She's getting nominated. I don't know if she won the Oscar, but nominated for Oscars. I mean, she's incredible. So, you know, I think. We need a bit of illogical in the world, and and that's a really important lesson. A field of dreams delivers to us. Yeah, and, and I think just the, that you know you hit it on the head when you're talking about entrepreneurial spirit and just belief. Belief being kind of the thing. It's like it was so interesting to see some of the. This is a movie I'm going to have to rewatch soon too. By the way, I, I kind of thought about it and I was like, ah, I don't have time yet. But I was like, I'm going to do this. This is one of those, and I've seen it recently. Within the like past five years, I have seen it again, and I just remember it fondly but uh yeah just the opposition uh the people that that are looking over kevin costner's character's shoulder and they're just like what are you doing you're you're being and they're they're being logical and there's nothing wrong with that but again like you said we need all kinds of people and we need the illogical people we need the people who hear the voices in their head regardless of knowing where that's coming from and and turns out it's from heaven and you know then we get into and again the father issues like man if you if you're you're, you kind of get floored when, you know, the baseball players come out at the of the field at the end. Spoiler alert. I'm sure people already know what the movie's about. <laughs> but uh, if you haven't, watch it. But um, when the baseball players come out and you kind of realize, like, what it's all about. And even just then the, you know, the, the closing shots of the movie where it's elevating into the air and you see that 
yes, he did build it. And yes, they are coming. The people, not just, you know, the baseball players, but the people are coming. And it's like, what is good? It's just kind of a, it is in a way a kind of trippy movie when it's over, but it's, it's a really good movie. And it's a really good kind of not just feel good, but like, you know what? Maybe I need to listen to that inner dialogue or I need to, you know, have more inner dialogue with myself about some of these thoughts and things I want to do and, and dreams. Hence the name field of dreams. <laughs> yeah. You can't be, you, you, it's almost impossible to be logical and try to do something on your own. Um, to try to go out there and do something no one else has done. You know, I was told I was nuts for leaving the corporate world five and a half years ago to go do what I'm doing now, but I believed in myself and I, I had this idea and I wanted to chase it and whether it was illogical or not didn't really matter to me. And so, uh, that's, that's really an important lesson in, and field of dreams, this idea of like, you know, again, yeah, it's chasing your dreams, whatever. But when you feel like you're called to something, who cares what people say? Like, what difference does, you know, don't, don't think about what other people are saying. Think about what you're telling yourself or what you're hearing, uh, or what you're seeing and go for it. I mean, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop to look around once in a while, you can miss it. And that's, you know, that, that's a theme throughout a lot of movies, including Field of Dreams. Eric, I was wondering, you know, you know, I know we're probably going to wrap up here shortly, but I, I wanted to bring up one lesson that I think is a really awesome one from Prince the musician. It's a little bit off of the movie thing, but this is one of my favorite lessons. And uh, Prince is one of my favorite musicians. I mean, he just, you know, he, he, when we talk about genius, we throw the word genius around quite a bit, but he legitimately was a genius. And he talked about how his mind just never shut off. And that's really what happens with geniuses. It's why so many of them have shorter lives than we had wished they would have because they just constantly on. And imagine like waking up every day if you get any sleep and looking at the world and everything you look at is just different than what everybody else sees. It's got to be at some point just really drive you you're crazy. And so he was like this just a complete genius. And in 1987, Suzanne Vega had a song called My Name is Luca. If you've ever heard that song, I live on the second floor. I live upstairs from you. Now, Suzanne Vega was a like, kind of a like an alt singer. I listened to her. I heard her on college radio. She had a song, uh, Left of Center, I believe, that was on the Pretty and Pink soundtrack a few years before that, that not at Prince's level by any stretch. She was not a household name. She was not known by one name across the world as Prince was. But he heard this song, My Name is Luca, and he was so moved by it. But he actually penned a handwritten note to her. But you can Google this handwritten note. If you Google Prince and Suzanne Vega, you'll see the handwritten note. And it says, Dear Suzanne, Luke is the most compelling piece of music I've heard in a long time. There are no words to describe all the things I fear when I hear it. I thank God for you, Prince. And she delivered this handwritten note to her. Now, no digital means to get this to her in 1987. He had to actually have it hand delivered, whether it was himself or somebody in his group, whatever. Um, there's another step. I mean, then about this because in 2016, when he passed away, she put this out on social media, I think to let people know the kind of guy he was behind the scenes. That he was a lot more than just the musician, the great musician. He was this awesome human as well. And when he, this handwritten note, he taught us a couple of really great lessons. One is to share the stage of success. But it doesn't matter how big the stage is that you're on. He was on the biggest stage in the world. Leaders share the stage of success. They recognize that other people are doing great things and they say, hey, there's room on the stage for you here. And they invite people up on that stage. Willings keep everybody below it. They don't want anybody on that stage with them. They want to rule that stage. Leaders share the stage. The second thing is that encouragement doesn't cost a thing. You can go out today and encourage anybody. Going back to our Cameron Fry lesson, there's somebody in your life that probably needs encouragement. Encouragement doesn't cost a thing. All it takes is talking to somebody. 
saying, hey, you know, I see you doing something great. Well, what's going on? How can I help? Encouraging somebody. Encouragement doesn't cost a thing. And the third thing is that the handwritten note is a lost art. For all of you out there that are leaders, it's really nice to get an email that acknowledges something that somebody did. It's so much better to open up your mailbox or come to your desk in the morning and have a handwritten note there from your manager, from your supervisor, from your leader saying, I saw what you were doing on that project the other day, or I loved what you said in the meeting on Tuesday. Awesome job. Keep it up. There's a lot further and it takes you about 90 seconds more to write. You're dead on there. So I love it. Thank you for bringing that up. I, and yeah, I'm, I'm a fan of Prince too as well. And, and it's unfortunate we lost him and David Bowie and I think somebody else all in the same year. I forget who that other person, I think it was Tom Petty maybe, or it was he was right before them or something like that. I think Tom Petty and then right around that same time was Robin Williams as well. That's right. Just, I mean, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Man. So let's wrap this up. I mean, I want to point people to your books, obviously, and there's so much more. I mean, we scratched the surface in a lot of ways here. We did, yeah. You've got three books out. One's the brand new one. I'll link up to all those in the show notes. And you can tell us, again, where people can find you specifically, your site. I just want to say, like, these books contain lots more lessons on things like uh, movies and music, you know, movies like The Goonies and Say Anything, Ghostbusters, Princess Bride, Back to the Future, another favorite. They're all favorites, actually. So, but where can people find you? Yeah, I appreciate it. So, uh, my website is chrisclues.com, and uh, that's where people can find me. I'm also a keynote speaker as well. That's my main role is keynote speaker as well as an author. And so, I speak on the same topic of 80s pop culture and what it can teach us for life and work. You can find me on Instagram at chrisclues80s. You can find me on Twitter at 80s pop culture. I can't believe that that one was available. Uh, at 80s pop culture, really incredible. Um, and LinkedIn and Facebook at Chris Clues. Yeah, I'm keynote speaker as well. So, um, if your organization company is looking for a cool, fun, unique, interactive speaker, I'm your guy. Awesome. Chris, been great talking with you. Again, I encourage everybody to check out your site as well as the books. I'll link up to everything in the show notes. Thanks again for sharing with us. Thanks, Eric. I appreciate it. Stay right, everybody. Well, that's another podcast crossed off your listening to-do list. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Chris Clues like I did. It was really fun to geek out over 80s pop culture, movies, music, etc. And you can find his books in the show notes listed at beyondthetodolist.com or in your show notes on your podcast player app of choice. Just click through there. I've also included a link to my top productivity books for 2023, which is at beyondthetodolist.com slash books. And I hope that you take the time to maybe go grab not just those books, but another watch of these movies. Like I said, I just watched Ferris Bueller before having this conversation with Chris. I've seen Karate Kid many times in the past few years because of Cobra Kai. Breakfast Club is on my list to watch again because my daughter has never seen it. And we've been going through a lot of classic movies. Field of Dreams, I think, is on my list again. But I think I'm going to wait until it's spring and summer out because that's more of the vibe from that. But again, I really hope that you take time to revisit this more lighthearted approach to business, to productivity, to learning lessons in a way that's more accessible. I hope that you got something great out of this conversation. And if you did, please do me the favor and somebody else the favor of sharing this conversation with them. Let them know about this episode. You can do that by hitting share on the podcast player app of choice or again at the show notes at beyondthetodolist.com. Thank you again for sharing the show. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next episode.